You're listening to Progressively Older. Thanks for finding Progressively Older. My name is Lincoln Eaton. This is my podcast about getting older and staying progressive while you do it. Thanks for tuning in. Well, it was 1967, and it was the summer of love. In the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco, young people were reinventing what freedom meant in the United States, stretching boundaries that had been in place for generations. Peace became a political force, and love was a radical form of protest. Now, I knew nothing of this at the time. I was in fourth grade, for goodness sake, and the most love meant to me was kissing both Claire and Heidi in a phone booth outside the gym in the basement of the Brook School, making them both my girlfriend. Two girlfriends simultaneously. Well, maybe I knew more than I thought after all. But putting that aside, for me, 1967 would become a year of heroes and memories that would last a lifetime. The Boston Red Sox had simply sucked in 1966, and they were an utterly forgettable collection of underachieving ball players, but 1967, Haywood Sullivan had changed all that with personnel moves over the over the winter, and it would change forever. A new coach, a new attitude, and as spring tried to bloom past another harsh New England winter, there was a new hope. Ah, let the season begin. To this day, I can easily recite the starting lineup of that club. I was the perfect age for heroes. I would turn 10 that summer, and these guys were larger than life. Rico Petroselli at shortstop was a favorite, as me and Danny vied for being the smallest males in our class, and weren't shortstops short? the hulking George Scott at first base, Ken Harrelson joining the team in midseason, adding offense and some grooviness with his Nehru jackets that had not been there before. Catcher Elston Howard came over from the Yankees and solidified a shaky backstop position. Tony C. got beaned, and no-name Billy Rohr, a rookie, pitched a one-hitter. Jim Lonborg emerged as an ace. And of course, there was Captain Carl. Carl Yastrzemski would do it all for the Sox that season. He was the opposite of Ken Harrelson. Straight-laced, serious, a blue-collar worker bee that took his job seriously and rose to the occasion whenever the team needed him. 
playing the green monster like he had invented it. He made Fenway's left field a kill zone where great hitters went to die. At bat, his routine would be copied by little leaguers everywhere, digging his cleats in the dirt, aggressively pressing his helmet down on his head, and still swinging so hard it would sometimes go flying anyway. They would lose the World Series in seven games to a superhuman Bob Gibson and the St. Louis Cardinals. That fall, televisions would be rolled into our classrooms to watch the games at school as we began our negotiations of fifth grade. But our priorities were clear. (laughs) Man, oh man. Now that was when baseball was baseball, right? The good old days. Well, that's, that's poppycock, really. The kids of today who come up watching their games of choice are forging their own heroes, their own memories, their own nostalgia. In 50 years, aging men will be talking about Mike Trout, Christian Yelich, Alex Bregman, and Mookie Betts, breathlessly recounting their greatest plays and lamenting how the game has changed. (laughs) Nostalgia is a generational season. It's nothing more. Our parents looked on us as coddled as we got five and ten speeds on our bikes. What was that for? We had ballpoint pens that didn't even require refilling and TVs that were reliable and often in color. Their parents now, they thought they were coddled because they had gas-powered transportation, telephones right inside the home, and even indoor toilets. (laughs) We continue the inherited abuse of our children deriding them for their cell phones and constant communication and virtual gaming. And they will have fodder to vilify their children. Have no fear of that. Progress will continue to provide grist for the mill of generational self-congratulation. And people will continue to fall into the trap of generational superiority complexes. It's really all part of the dance of aging ungracefully. Ironically, the new technology has provided a way for our generation to bitch about how the younger folks are being destroyed by the very tech we use to bitch about it. The memes and list posts of how we played and what we played with that litter Facebook and other social media can now consolidate the boomers into a collective ennui. Certain the youngsters will never have it so good as they try to negotiate their way through a very challenging global landscape of our generation's creation. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my, my nostalgia. I love it. There are memories I cherish, a fondness for how I grew up, with all the attendant whitewashing of it that makes it so clean and refreshing. I like my banana seat bike. 
my jeans that would eventually be cut off and become shorts. My PF flyers, if money was good that fall. Mint julep candy and Turkish taffy. A skeleton key hanging on the outside wall by the front door it opened. <laughs> Roller skates that strapped to any shoes you had. So much more. So treasured now. As they are anthropological data points of a moment in time. I've just lost the arrogance to think that this inheritance of the certainty of our generation's superiority ends with us. Being progressive is a two-edged sword. If the world is to move ahead and grow and learn, by definition, things are lost, left behind and replaced. We don't commute by stallion anymore, and the bank doors don't have to be open to get our money. Our nostalgia is a function of our season. And treated carefully, it can be a source of great warmth and joy without requiring us to judge harshly what came after. If we are lucky and we face large global challenges with courage and vigor, there will be a future that our next generation of seniors can find wanting. And inferior. You've been listening to Progressively Older. <laughs>